back to the pew everybody i am your host john edwards and i'm excited to bring you another one of these bonus episodes of just a guy in the pew we've been blessed lately to have on a lot of great guests a lot of catholic evangelists presenters religious and today i'm excited to say that we're going to add a philosopher to that list of guests and it's someone that i've had the uh blessing and and the the joy to get to know a little bit over the last year working on several conferences with them. And our guest today is going to be Dr. Peter Kraft. Before I bring him up though, I wanna, I wanna tell you a little bit about him. So Dr. Peter Kraft is a professor of philosophy at Boston College. He loves his five grandchildren, four children, one wife, one cat, and one God. Dr. Kraft has written over 95 books that include the Handbook of Christian Apologetics, Christianity for Modern Pagans, and Making Sense Out of Suffering. Now that last book is what we're gonna concentrate on today. A lot of you guys have written in, emailed, texted, and sent us all sorts of messages about suffering and, and just how you're trying to work through that in your life and what is the purpose of it and all these questions that I'm sure led to Dr. Crave uh, writing this great book. So without further ado, I wanna bring up my friend, Dr. Peter Crave. Dr. Crave, it's great to be with you today. Great to be with you again too, John. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. And as I said there in the opening, you know, and I told you a little bit about our ministry before we started the show, there's a lot of people out here, obviously, that that have questions about suffering. Why do we suffer? And all of these things And I know you put a lot of work into that book, Making Sense Out of Suffering. And I just finished reading it myself and found a lot of great answers that I've been looking for in my life and, and a lot of great places we can go in our faith and in scripture to find answers for this. So I wanted to have you on today just to talk a little bit about suffering, you know, why you wrote the book, and just answer some questions that that uh, people may be, be wondering out here when it comes to suffering. Yeah. Good. I'm here. My yes, sir. Are picking, whatever they are. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, first of all, I guess I'll go to the obvious question. You know, well, the first question most people probably ask when, when they're in the middle of some sort of suffering is, why do we suffer? Or particularly, why do I suffer? I know a lot of times we personalize things. So why do we suffer? It's much easier to answer the question, why do we suffer, than the question, why do I suffer? Hmm. Suffering is the universal human lot. First of all, we are animals with nerve endings all over our bodies. Secondly, we are fallen from innocence and a perfect uh, and peaceful relationship with God and nature. Uh, and thirdly, because uh, God in his providence uses everything, even bad things, for, uh, for good ends. All things work together for good, for those who love God. So those are all parts of the answer to why we as a human race suffer. Why each individual gets the particular suffering that he or she gets, we don't know. Uh, that's the point of the book of Job. Uh, it seems that Job needed suffering less than others and certainly deserved it less than others. He was a saint and yet he suffered as all the saints do. And God's answer is, uh, well, Job, you've got to learn two things. One, who I am and two, who you are. God and you're not. Uh, I'm the author of the play and you're a character in my play. You've got to trust me that uh, I'm using you for high and holy purposes which you couldn't possibly understand precisely because you're not God. You've got to trust me. Bottom line. And that's really one of the hardest parts, right? When we're going through suffering is trying to trust in God that it's something for our good and and not for just something to for, to simply suffer. Because I think that's where we find ourselves a lot is what is God really good? Why am I being punished? Why am I having to go through this instead of, like you said, trusting in the fact that God knows more 
that he is God and that it's something that we need in our life. Our notion of what is right and good and just is not infallible. It's not perfect. Uh, worst thing that ever happened, the most evil thing that ever happened, namely the deliberate torture and murder of God incarnate. Mm. Uh, God used for the greatest possible purpose. And we call that Good Friday. Well, if he can make that obvious evil a means to the end of the greatest good, he can take all our relatively small sufferings and, and, and miseries and failures use them for, for good too. If we're aligned with his purposes, if we have faith, if we trust him, if we say, okay, give him a blank check. Mm. That, that's the difficult thing. Uh, we like to give God uh, checks uh, made out to a certain amount. So <laughs> I'll, I'll trust you with this, but not that. Uh, if, if I get a cold, that's fine. But if I get cancer, that's not. Uh, one or two meaningless deaths I can handle, but millions I, I can't handle. Uh, we can't draw any line. I give him a blank check, he's got. Yeah. Well, I guess then the next question that would, you know, seem to make sense to ask is, you know, since we are, we all have to suffer and, and no one is, is void of that. We're all going to have to go through some sort of suffering in our life. What is the cause of suffering? Where did all this start and, and why do we need to suffer? Well, the Bible gives a pretty clear answer to that question. Uh, God created us perfect. Uh, we were in a perfect and innocent uh, and totally faithful relationship. We pulled the plug. We uh, succumbed to the world's oldest profession, advertising, invented by the devil in the Garden of Eden. Uh, see this Apple computer? Take a bite out of it. Uh, you can be God. Uh, and the result of that was that everything fell because God is the author of all order and all unity and all peace, including the peace between your body and your soul and the peace between your body and nature and the peace between God and your soul. Uh, think of uh, a magnet with three iron rings attached to it. The magnet is God. The first iron ring is your soul. The second is your body. The third is, is the world. Uh, once the soul pulls the plug to God, once that first iron ring says, I want to be my own God, I'll do it my way. I'll believe the devil rather than you. Uh, magnetism that holds those three iron rings together weakens. Still there, body and soul still hold together for 80 or 90 years maybe, but I. Uh, and our relationship to nature has changed. It's now thorns and thistles. It's now pain uh, and suffering because it's all part of a, of a single order. So that's the, that's the answer to the historical origin of suffering. God didn't create us to suffer. Suffering is a result of sin in general, but not in particular. Why does God use this particular suffering? Does it correlate quantitatively with this particular sin? Uh, the answer to those questions is we don't know how he does it, and it's not a kind of an equation. can't figure it out. Mm. Well, let me ask you this then. So if we know we have to suffer and we know what the cause of suffering is, then I think this is where a lot of people get stuck in this is what does God think of my suffering? 
you know, we can, we can sit there and, and when we're going through things, whether it's happening to us, whether it's happening to our child, my wife works at St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis, which is a cancer research hospital for children here. And she sees, you know, children going through all sorts of different cancers and sufferings and their family and everything all the time on a daily basis. And a lot of times I think people can get caught up in not only why am I suffering, but what does God think about my suffering? If he loves me as much as he says he does, or as the Bible says he does, then what does he think when one of his children that he loves so much is suffering? What, what does he think about that? The Christian has a remarkably clear and complete answer to that question that even the pious Jew or Muslim doesn't have. Hmm. The Christian, we know God through Christ. Christ is the complete manifestation of God. God holds nothing back. All right. What does Christ think about human suffering? We see that in the gospel. His compassion is total. When his friend Lazarus died and uh, Mary and Martha, uh, two sisters, uh, were grieved, uh, how did he react? He came there and he wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. That's the answer to what God thinks about suffering. Mm -hmm. Total sympathy, total empathy. He's in it with us. Mm. Yeah, that's what a great answer. I mean, that that is certainly a point. Shortest shortest verse in the Bible, but one of the most powerful ones. And I think that does provide a good answer to us. That that I think I think a lot of people we think that sometimes suffering is a punishment from God, or it's something that we're receiving because of something that we've done. And you're you're so right. We forget so often that when we're going through these things in our life, that God isn't some faraway God off in the distance somewhere watching like he's watching a movie, that he is in it with us and that he's sitting there beside us most of the time. I mean, all of the time when we're going through everything, whether it's the good times or the bad. And I just think it's such an issue where people get caught up in thinking that sort of they've been abandoned by God whenever they're going through something. Many people, understandably, lose their faith when they see terrible suffering, like the Holocaust. And they ask the question, where was God in the Holocaust? And there's a very clear answer to that. He was in the gas chamber. Uh, the, the gas chamber. Hmm. He's the victim. There he is on the cross. What, what Jesus suffered on the cross was all human sufferings. Through his empathy, through his identification with all humanity, uh, he suffered all that we saw. Hmm. Uh, and the flip side of that is that our sufferings then can be joined with his, can be part of his, not, not just count in a legal way, as if you're adding up a score, but can actually participate in the sufferings of Christ. Because by baptism and faith, we are made part of Christ's very body. Mm. That's not just a, a, a clever image. Uh, that's true. We're his organs. We're his members. Not like members of a club, but members of a body. Or his, the molecules in his body. So when he suffers, we suffer. When we suffer, he suffers. Hmm. Well, I think you're starting to answer my next question a little bit, but you know, the next logical question I would, I would think in the order of these things, and when I've heard you talk about this before is, what does God do about it? So they're suffering, he knows we're suffering, he's in it with us, but what is his response to suffering? First of all, to incarnate himself and to put himself in the complete human situation. Uh, so he turns suffering from something passive into something active. He, he chooses to enter into it and changes its meaning. He doesn't come to take our sufferings away. He comes to change the meaning of suffering. 
from a tragedy that we simply endure to an action that we can hope has significant effects. Uh, look what his suffering did. It was the most powerful thing that any human being ever did in the world. He, he saved the human race. He closed hell and opened heaven by Aaron. That work. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and I think oftentimes we, we look at it as Jesus was on that crucifix and that that was his cross to bear, which it was, and he bore, he bore it for all of us. But oftentimes we can, we can think that we're saved from the same thing, that we don't have to pick up the crosses in our life and carry them. A lot of times I think we can wish them away or, or wish God would just save us from them, but it's those very crosses, I believe, that draw us into Christ and into his suffering and allow us to take part in that. Blessed Fulton Sheen often used to say, don't waste your suffering. Mm. It's, a, it's a tremendous opportunity. Mm. Uh, to enter into that mystery is not to suffer less, not to, to solve the problem of suffering. It's to solve the problem of the meaning of suffering. Mm. It hurts just as much, but now, but now it's like childbirth rather than like torture. Imagine an extraterrestrial coming down into a hospital and seeing a woman give birth all the doctors around in their scary white coats and their shiny metal instruments they think they were in a torture chamber mm. ask the woman are you in a torture chamber she said no uh, does it hurt damn well it hurts she says <laughs> uh but it's worth it why because of what you're doing and jesus uses that image too of a woman in childbirth that's what that's where we all are what can we do about it? So you've talked a little bit about what God can do about it, what he's done about it in sending his son to take on human flesh and to show us the meaning of suffering. So what do we do about it? Do we, do we sit here and just in lament over it or, or, or you know, what, what is our play in this game of suffering? There's three possible answers to that question. One is simply to sit uh, morosely and take it like a stoic. The other is to rebel against it and to fight. Those are both natural reactions. But the Christian answer is a third thing. You offer it up. You transform it from something passive into something active, from something that is negative to something that's positive, uh, from something like torture to something like childbirth. Uh, and, and you can do that by faith, right? by simply cooperating with what God is doing. That's, that's what God is doing. He's, he's using our sufferings for a, an end, a purpose, a goal that is so glorious that if we saw it now, we would say, give me some more. <laughs> I'm very suspicious of people who say, God, give me some more suffering. I can take it. I think that's proud. Yeah. I think one of, the, uh, one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, means don't give us trials we can't take. We're weak. Yeah, and, and that's humble and, and honest, and we have to do that. But when the trials come, uh, that necessarily means that God sees that we can profit from this. We can, we can use this. Perhaps the hardest verse in the Bible to believe is also the most amazingly wonderful one, Romans 8, 28. All mm. things work together for good for those who love God. Alternative translation, God works all things together for good for those who love him. That is hard to believe, but it necessarily follows from the three most fundamental attributes of God, 
if God is not all-powerful, he's not one of the Greek gods. Um, Neptune controls the sea, but not uh, uh, the air. And Mars controls war, but not peace, and so on. Well, that's not God. All right, he's all-powerful. He created the whole universe. He's all-wise. He makes no mistakes. He knows exactly everything about us and what we need in our future. And finally, he's all-loving. He's love itself. His intentions are, are totally benevolent. He doesn't have a dark side. From those three premises, Romans 8.28 logically follows. If God wants nothing but our best good, and he knows what our best good is, and he has no limits on his power to achieve that what he wants, well, that's what our sufferings are. Mm. And if we believe that, even if we don't feel it, belief doesn't come from feelings. Feelings are, are, are wonderful and they're, they're helps, but sometimes they're not there. Christ had great feelings on the cross. Uh, if, if we believe that, we have faith, uh, we're swimming in God's river. We're in God's bloodstream, and we're not standing on the banks observing it anymore. It means part of it, part of his work, the work he's doing. Hmm. Well, let me ask you this. I, I, I took some notes from your book, too. I want to jump into some of those, just some things that I found interesting and some points that you made in the book. You know, you talked about repentance is the purpose of suffering. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, we all have to repent. Uh, salvation is a two-part process, a negative part and a positive part. The positive part is faith, but the negative part is repentance. Uh, there's something in us that has to be dealt with why there's a purgatory even though our sins are forgiven those sinful habits are still there and they have to be erased and when we show up uh, at the porch of heaven and god welcomes us inside and he says uh, you'll, you'll, you'll notice that uh, uh, there's fleas all over you and dirt and and scabs and you stink wouldn't you like to take a nice hot shower in the bathroom first before you come into the dining room for the heavenly banquet and you say oh oh lord please let me take that hot shower he'll say it will hurt you know uh, and wouldn't you say well even so let me take it well that kind of purgatory which is necessary begins in this life and if we're open to it by repentance, if we, if, we, if we will it, and if we even will to will it, our wills are weak and, and divided. Uh, we don't have to have perfect. Uh, we have to will to have perfect. Will. Hmm. The first and greatest commandment is to love God with your whole heart and soul and mind and strength. Do any of us do that? No. Do we want to do that yet? How much do we want to do that? We want to do that with our whole soul and mind and strength mm. and if we want that god will give it to us mm. well i know another thing that you had in there that i really found interesting was uh you said that suffering what is suffering to the christian and your answer was jesus's invitation to follow him can you speak a little into that we're to follow him in all things he was completely human he revealed to us not only completely who God is, but completely who we are. Uh, and his attitude towards suffering and his use of suffering uh, is to be ours. So he didn't, he didn't simply passively endure it. He didn't simply fight it. Uh, he used it throughout his life. Uh, in every single detail, uh, Christ's life is to be our life. 
He's not just up there on the pedestal so that we can say, well, he's God and I'm not, so I don't have to follow him. Uh, he's human and we are, so we do have to follow him every detail. So we have to have his compassion and sympathy and, and empathy. Uh, and we also have to be healers, uh, body and soul. Uh, part of the ministry that uh, Christians who are too spiritual sometimes ignore is this is a medical ministry, his, his healing of bodies. That's, that's a divine work. That's not just a human work. Hmm. The body and the soul always go together. Neither can be. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that you said that I really found, this is just a beautiful way of saying what you've sort of said throughout this interview is uh, you said that Jesus is the tears of God. Uh, you know, that's what you said in the book. Could you talk about that for just a second? Yeah. Does God have emotions? I think the answer is yes, he has active emotions, but not passive emotions. Mm. Does not change. He does not fall in love as we do, because you can fall in love only if you start by not being in love. You can fall into the ocean only if you're on the land. God is never on the land. He is the ocean. He is love. So he doesn't fall in love. That doesn't mean that his love is less volcanic and dynamic and active, but more so. Hmm. So his compassion too, and his pity and his tears are active. Uh, as a complete human being, Jesus is also passive. Passive to death. You can kill him. We did. Yeah. We killed God. That's amazing. But at the same time, his divine nature is totally active. And you can't kill him. You can't push him around. You can't change him. And the union of those two things in the same person is possible. And in a human way, in a finite way, we can participate in that union of the passive and the active reactions to suffering. We're, we're human, so we're victims of suffering. We can't, we can't help it. We can't simply deny it or overcome it. But at the same time as we're suffering passively, we can offer that suffering up actively. Offer it up. That's a, a three-word formula that Catholics used to hear a lot. They don't hear that anymore. What a shame. That's very precious. But we're not suffering any less now than we did before. We have less physical pains because our medical technology is wonderfully advanced. But we have more emotional and mental pains probably than ever before. Suicide rate is up. Divorce is up. Depression is up. Uh, so our amount of sufferings, I don't think, has changed significantly. So the answer to what do we do about our suffering and we offer it up is just as relevant today as it ever was. Mm -hmm. And that offering it up is, is an action on our part. It transforms our suffering from something merely passive to, to a deed, to an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. yeah, what a great answer. And that, that's something that I know I find hard sometimes. I, I start to suffer in you know, that, that immediate response is sort of why and you start to go inward with it instead of looking outward, which we're called to do as Christians, to love our neighbor and to, to, to serve our neighbor. And a lot of times you can quickly forget that this isn't just pain for me to suffer, to suffer. I can use this 
and pray, use it to, to lift it up, to offer it up for someone else, for a prayer for someone else, or, or put it to good use in, in, in those ways and offering it up, like you're saying. And it's hard. It's something I think we have to be disciplined to, and we have to train ourselves to do, but it makes so much sense when you say the suffering is now not useless. It's for, it's not for nothing. If you're, if you're taking it and giving it as a gift and offering it up to someone else or for someone else's behalf. Yeah, we have to fight against that natural instinct to say, why am I suffering as our first response to suffering? Hmm. First response to suffering does not come from the head. It doesn't come from the mind that understands suffering and then applies that understanding. It's not a scientific method kind of thing. It comes from the, comes from the will, it comes from the choice. I don't understand this God, but I'm offering it up to you in faith and trust. And hopefully you will help me to understand it. Hopefully my, you will use my heart to enlighten my head. But it's not going to work the other way around. Our human head is not sufficient to adequately enlighten our human heart. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, you know, oftentimes whenever we're talking about things, when I have a guest on or a certain subject matter, people always ask, where do I find answers to this in scripture? And I know that you've mentioned Job, and that is a tremendous, a tremendous example of suffering and and how to deal with it. And you've talked about that just a little bit. One other place that I found uh, just through reading the Bible one day and, and opened it up to Hebrews chapter 12. And that was a place in scripture where I found a lot of things that, where it says, you know, if you've not been disciplined by the Lord, you're not a son, but a bastard, you know, mm -hmm. and then it, it tells you things also like uh, your earthly fathers disciplined us for a long time has seemed right to them, but he does so for our benefit in order that we may share in his holiness. What do you think about that chapter 12 in Hebrews and, and what it can unlock for us in suffering as well? That's a great chapter to pick because of what comes before it and after it. What comes before it in chapter 11 is the roll call of all the great heroes of faith, all the great patriarchs. They all accomplished tremendous things and they were heroes. Why? Through their suffering. Hmm. None of those people had an easy life and yet they had a glorious life. And the following chapter, chapter 13, is eschatological. It's about uh, uh, the result of, of what we do on earth in, in the next life. Uh, and you get a glimpse of, of the heavenly glory. And we're between those two things. We're between our, our ancestors who have paved the way uh, and our, our own hope for heavenly future. Uh, I think we need that historical context, uh, the present is not isolated from its past and the future. Mm. Amen. You, know, you have another quote in your book, and this doesn't have as much to do, with, maybe it does have as much to do with suffering. I think it's all in life in general, and I just chuckled at it when I read it. But you say, we are far too impatient with questions, therefore far too shallow in appreciating answers. I find a lot of truth in that statement, and, and you could apply it to a lot of things. What What are your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously you wrote that, so that is your thought, but... There's just so much truth in that quote. Well, there's two kinds of questions. There's a practical question that you want the quickest and most immediate answer to. And then there's a, a, a deeper question that's more contemplative. You want to explore a mystery. Mm. And you don't expect to ever come to the end of the mystery. And you love the process itself, getting a little more light and a little more light. That, that, that's what life is like. It's not a puzzle mystery to be lived it's it, it's a drama not a uh, a mathematical form hmm. 
Folks, we're talking to Dr. Peter Craved about suffering here. And, and Doctor, you've been great with your time, gracious with your time. And I just have a couple more things I want to ask you about. And, and then I'll let you get back to your day. I know you're a busy guy. But uh, one of the things you say towards the end of the book, obviously, you start the question and you, your, your goal is to try to give an answer. Uh, and the answer that I saw you gave in the book is that the solution to suffering is the Eucharist itself. And, you know, as a guy who went through a, an addiction in my life for 17 years, and part of the way that I was able to come out of that and, and, and start to hopefully become the husband and the father that I was called to be was through daily mass and that reception of the Eucharist uh, is as early and as often as I could take in my life. You know, you give that answer uh, as a solution to suffering in the Eucharist itself. Would you go into that a little bit? Yeah, I think because our technology is so successful and pervasive in our life, we think of all problems as technological problems. Uh, and that's exactly the wrong way to think of the Eucharist. Here, you've got a problem. Let's say you've got an addiction. All right, God gives you a bunch of solutions to it. What's the best solution? Well, the Eucharist. What's that like? Well, it's like a pill. You take it and uh, you relieve the symptoms. That's not how it works. Eucharist is not a problem, but a mystery. Mm. Incorporates you into Christ. Changes you as, as your life itself changes you. You're, you're changing every day. You're growing. Uh, you're uh, digesting food. Uh, your uh, in relationship to your parents and your children, procreation, those are all mysteries. They're not uh, they're not mechanical. They're 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 organic. And our relation to Christ is also not mechanical or legal or technological. It, it's organic. So when we receive the Eucharist, it's 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 not like taking a pill, like making love like producing a spiritual child it's the two become one flesh you become one with christ himself that's absolutely amazing and we we have to resist our temptation to to reduce it to something that we can comprehend and control because we can't Well, I guess the last question here we'll have in summary is, and this is one of the last questions that you gave yourself in your talk that you answered uh, on one of the virtual Catholic conferences that you did with us, is what difference will all this make? So we've talked about all this. We've gone through the questions of why do we suffer? What causes it? What does God think of it? What do we do about it? What can we do about it? What does he do about it? And what difference will it make? So I want to leave you with that question here as we close out. What difference will all of this make of what we've talked about today? It'll give you, even in this life, no matter whether your sufferings are great or little, uh, a peace, a reconciliation, an acceptance, uh, a positive attitude towards everything in your life. It'll, it'll cast a new light on everything, namely God's light. Uh, and in the next life, it will enable you to perceive more of God and share more in the heavenly glory. I don't think we're all going to be equal in heaven. We're all equally loved by God, but we appreciate him more as our hearts are, are larger. The eye of the heart is the eye that's going to see God the most in heaven. And suffering breaks your heart, and that's a good thing. Great, great work of art. Uh, every work that has tremendous beauty in it does that. It breaks your heart. 
it's the, the greatest compliment you can give to any artist, a, a musician or a painter or a novelist. Uh, you broke my heart. Well, mm. God does that with our suffering. And the only wise heart is one that's been broken. Rabbi uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel says, the man who has not suffered, what could he possibly know anyway? <laughs> so the more, the more you suffer, uh, the more you can appreciate God, both in this life and in the next. Mm. And that's the whole meaning of life. Yeah, yes, sir. Dr. Crave, it's been such a pleasure to be with you. I know you've got a lot going on. And I just, on behalf of the church, I mean, I know I'm not the church, but I'm part of it. So I guess I could speak for it a little bit. Thank you for all your contributions. I mean, when you look at everything you've done, the, the 95 books or more, it's probably more than that now, and everything that you've done and, and, and your teaching at, at Boston College and just what you've offered the world, I want to say thank you for just the gifts that, that uh, you have that the Lord gave you and how you've been using them to to help people like myself grow closer to the Lord and understand some of the hardest things that we have to deal with in life. Well, I think my books are useful because they're written by a beginner uh, and by a very ordinary Catholic and an ordinary sinner. Uh, and therefore other beginners and ordinary Catholics and ordinary sinners can connect with them. That's my business. I'm not a professional scholar. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, you're also a humble guy and that's a great virtue to have. So Thank you for that, Dr. Crave. Folks, you can check him out. Uh, he's got a website. Dr. Crave, do you mind telling us what that website is? Um, I think it's just petercrave.com. Yeah, I believe that's correct. Petercrave.com. You can get any of my books from uh, Ignatius Press, uh, most of them. Uh, they're listed on my website. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Crave. It's been a pleasure to get to be with you today and over the last year as you've helped us out so graciously with all the conference things we put on. I really appreciate your time today. You're welcome, John. God bless you and your work. Yeah, God bless you. Yeah.